This episode of The Green Rush is brought to you by Heffernan Insurance Brokers. For a long time, cannabis companies have been shut out of many financial and insurance opportunities. That has now changed as cannabis companies have an option that can change their company's bottom line. Berkshire Hathaway is exclusively partnered with Heffernan Insurance Brokers, and the first work comp dividend program for businesses in the cannabis industry is now available nationwide. Rates that are filed in states across the U.S. can receive up to 40% of your premium back. So if you're an MSO that would like to have the potential to receive premium back on your work comp, give Kevin Tarango at Heffernan Insurance Brokers a ring at 415-699-2022 or go to hefcan.com. That's H-E-F-F-C-A-N-N.com. Support Heffernan Insurance Brokers' efforts to strengthen the cannabis community and revolutionize how cannabis companies buy work comp insurance. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, host Chris Crane chats with Ira Weinstein, managing principal of cannabis industries for Cone Resnick, a leading advisory, assurance, and tax firm that helps clients seize emerging opportunities and change the game in their industries. Cone Resnick's cannabis practice helps cannabis companies adopt compliance, financial, and operating best practices to protect assets, strengthen balance sheets, and drive growth. In this episode, Chris sits down with Ira to learn about the process of launching a cannabis practice within a 100-year-old institutionalized consulting firm, as well as the growing environmental, social, and governance movement in the cannabis industry. Ira explains the need for professionalism and legitimacy within the business in order to maintain a well-regulated market and explains how his firm is helping to build it. He also discusses the potential of state-level rollout programs in 2023 within the tri-state area. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Cone Resnick's Managing Principal of Cannabis Industries, Ira Weinstein. So, Ira, thanks so much for joining us on The Green Rush today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. Well, let's just jump right in. Uh, so to, to kick things off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what brought you into the cannabis industry and what do you do at Cone Resnick to support your clients that are operating in this space? Sure. So I would say what brought us to the industry is our clients and, and opportunity. We had, and this goes back about seven years, we had clients... At the time, they were real estate clients who were exploring their own opportunities in the industry, either creating products or investing, and they wanted us to support them. And at the time, because of federal illegality and the extent to which we just hadn't considered the industry as a sort of a viable option for us, we couldn't support them. We had to go through kind of a process to get comfortable with what the future in cannabis might look like. I think we quickly figured out, though, that 
and and many of us were following the sort of what I'll call economic phenomenon around cannabis at the time. I think we quickly figured out that the industry needed certainly our services, and they're varied. So our ability to provide the same services we do to any of our accounting or consulting clients in this space, uh, as we would any other industry. Also, the fact that we had broad geography, we're a national firm, and obviously there was this movement of state legalization around the country. And I think the other part of it was that we felt like as an industry, cannabis was kind of this sort of amalgamation of other industries in terms of professional services and bringing expertise to an industry that was notwithstanding the existence of the legacy market, an industry that was literally brand new as a regulated sort of functioning industry. So we felt like we also had industry expertise that would lend itself to what was needed in cannabis from a sort of other industry perspective, if that makes sense. And, and as a result, we felt like, well, we can support existing clients and we have the opportunity to help bring a new industry into um, a level of sort of sophistication around finance and accounting that was critically needed in order to realize the potential that uh, this phenomenon was creating. And and tell us, I mean, you talk about your services or whatnot. I, I think it's it's likely that many of our listeners are not familiar with it. So talk a little bit about what, what services are you offering to your cannabis clients? Sure. So, so we're an accounting and consulting firm. So if you think about the more traditional accounting services, and those services include uh, things like uh, audit support or actual auditing, for those clients that that need it, which sometimes is is something that um, is a function of the size and sophistication of a client, right? Everybody doesn't need an audit that has a business, but many folks do either because lenders or investors require it. So we provide all of those audit services and we're supporting public and private companies. We provide all of the tax services that you would think of in any sort of an industry situation where you need to structure entities and organizations and where you have tax compliance at the state and federal level, meaning filing all of the, the tax returns and tax requirements. Uh, there are a host of issues in this industry around state and local taxes in particular, uh, oftentimes international tax becomes an issue because you have uh, capital coming from all over the world or companies that are exploring doing things outside of the U.S., Obviously, the, the circumstances with um, Canadian public companies deploying money in the states, those kinds of things, and anything else around more sort of traditional accounting services. So supporting uh, companies that have uh, outsourcing requirements, so sort of managed services for uh, your typical kind of CFO functionality. Additionally, working with folks around risk advisory issues, so internal controls, and for those companies that are or may be subject to Sarbanes-Oxley and all these other things that exist in so many other places, uh, we also do a lot of work around strategy and particularly around how technology can support strategy, so system selection and implementation, uh, cyber and data privacy, which is obviously a big issue everywhere, but particularly in the cannabis space and particularly uh, around medical uh, marijuana markets and, and issues around uh, healthcare data. Um, 
also in the restructuring space. Uh, that's not always one that everybody wants to lead with, but this industry is going through, you know, its its own iterations of kind of the the growth challenges, and so there's often a need for restructuring organizations to better prepare them for what's coming in the marketplace. So basically any of the services that you would see in what I'll call a more traditional industry from an accounting or consulting firm are services that we provide to support the office of the CFO or the accounting function or systems and IT related things, as well as all of the kind of valuation services and all of the M&A support on the buy and sell side around due diligence and quality of earnings and all the things that sort of help perpetuate an active and kind of vibrant market for um, asset acquisition and divestiture. Excellent. Um, and now you're not you're not a new pop up shop, right? Serving the cannabis industry, you're not a cannabis uh, consulting and, and, and CPA shop. Um, if I remember correctly, your firm's origins date back like over a hundred years, and you've worked with all sorts of businesses, right? Um, so, can can you walk us through the process of how were you able to convince the leadership of this type of long established firm that you wanted to launch a cannabis practice? And like when you started, did they look at you like you were like you were nuts? And how did you get them over the hump here? Uh, yeah, I'd say a little bit like I was nuts, at least some of them. Um, so th this, again, dates back about seven or so years. And I think part of the part of the. I'll call it the support we had is that we have historically, and I've been at the firm 25 years. You're right. The firm's been around for over a hundred. It's historically been a pretty entrepreneurial place, which I think for a lot of people, when they think of accounting consulting firms, they may not use the term entrepreneurial, but I really believe that we've been pretty entrepreneurial. Right. We've, right. I generally think risk averse, right? Right, right. But we've been an organization that said, you know, if there's an opportunity to do something that can help support a marketplace and that is something that can be good for us as an organization, we should explore it and we should do it very thoughtfully and we should do it in a way where we're bringing something that differentiates us. And as I challenge people to take that view of this industry, I think it became more and more clear to them that this was such a unique opportunity that we couldn't say no despite the fact that some may have wanted to find reasons to. And, and I thought that was a healthy process. Like my view is that you want the challenges, you want the skepticism, because I think it's helpful to saying, can we really be beneficial to an industry? And as a result, will that be good for those that we serve and for us? And so I appreciated the sort of level of skepticism. And that skepticism was around what reputational risk we would be taking and how that might challenge our existing clients. It was around the extent to which we had our own risk of just signing audit opinions or tax returns in an, a federally illegal market. Mm -hmm. But but at some point, I tried to focus folks on the business opportunity and the opportunity for us to make the cannabis industry a better place. And, and frankly, no matter what you think of the plant, I happen to be a big believer in all kinds of positive attributes of the plant and things that it can do that are incredibly positive societally, no matter what you think of the plant, you should want to have a heavily and well-regulated market in order for 
that market to continue to grow and for people, including those that are skeptical of it, to be comfortable that it's being advanced in an, in, in an appropriate and effective way. And, and that was part of my argument. I, I would say the, the most interesting part of my argument, which is the one that I actually think may be the most important, is the extent to which as a firm, cannabis is actually probably among our, it is among our smallest industries because it's so new. But sure. the largest industry is our affordable housing and community development space. And interestingly, that to me, and I spent a lot of my entire career in that space, to me, the cannabis industry today is very reminiscent of what that industry was like early in its life cycle. And so there you have public policy manifesting in tax policy and the development of industry activity around things like affordable housing, a societal need and issue that needed a public and private sector kind of collaboration to have success. And in many ways, that's what cannabis is. It's, it's a little bit in reverse from the sort of tax policy standpoint, because you know, 280E obviously is, is something that's viewed so negatively. But if you think about it at the state level, a host of issues around what I'll call tax policy, this is certainly a public policy issue at its core. It is a societal issue at its core. And so in many ways, my argument was, look, culturally, this is who we are. We've been able to bring sophistication to industries that needed it in an effort to support something that had a public policy element. And that's really what cannabis is. And so it was so much the fabric of who we've been, maybe not for 100 years, but certainly for the last 40, 45 or so, in being very focused on that affordable housing and community development space. And, and I felt like that sort of reminiscence we were seeing gave us what I'll call a cultural advantage a way of understanding the industry and what the potential was or the ability for us to impact it. And I felt like we could really make a difference. And if that difference we could make to the industry was going to give us opportunity, then at some level we were doing well by doing good. And that's who we are and, and where we've been. And so I felt like that was a pretty good recipe. So in addition to all of the other things we could bring, that felt to me like kind of the, the kind of icing on the cake. Excellent. Excellent. I, I appreciate that. And look, this industry has long needed uh, more professionalism, right? Folks who've done this in, you know, folks and firms who have done this outside of cannabis, um, right? That brings real professionalism and real legitimacy to the issue. Um, you know, I want to move on to some stuff that you're that you're working on, right? Some of your current your your, your current projects, and in particular, uh, I'd like to discuss Canna Quarterly. This is a quarterly quarterly newsletter that Cohen Resnick publishes for cannabis industry stakeholders. Which, if you're not receiving it, we'll have a link to subscribe in the show notes. Um, you published the Q4 edition in late 2022. Can you talk about some of the insights from that report? Sure. I mean, what we wanted to be able to do is add our voice. And, and I think there are a lot of voices out there. I think that's a good thing. We felt like we could have a unique voice because what we wanted to do is talk about things that were sort of timely and topical that related to areas of our expertise and do it in a way that wasn't um, 
something that people could get anywhere else. We, we wanted it to be somewhat thoughtful. We wanted it to be somewhat coordinated. And we wanted to we wanted it to address all of the areas that we felt like were important. So among those disciplines that I mentioned earlier, you know, where we could get perspective on or from our people on issues around the M&A market somewhat uniquely or on, you know, state and local tax issues that were particularly important in the moment or in this case in the quarter. And at the same time, we wanted to try and have some balance and some input from folks that we work with pretty closely around the industry. And so we selected uh, uh, Davidson, which is a, um, a firm in our international affiliation that we've worked with a lot in the cannabis industry. They're a accounting and consulting firm based in Vancouver, and they have a very good cannabis and public company practice. So we've been working with them since the inception of our efforts in the industry to support clients north of the border and, and sometimes clients here in the States as well. We wanted to get, we, we've done a lot of work with the Minority Cannabis Business Association. We feel the work they're doing and many others around um, really expansion of the market in particular was, was very important. And, and because of the relationship we developed with them, we asked them to participate in our quarterly um, we also have, have worked all very closely with Simplify, a kind of a Canatech, you know, reg organization that is very active in the industry and that we've had a, a lot of opportunity to sort of share ideas and, and um, in some cases, some clients. And we thought they brought a unique perspective. And then the Sustainable Cannabis Coalition is a group that we were a founding member of that we felt like also had a critical sort of message to send and um, level of uh, education and influence to try and uh, share. And we thought that um, for lots of different reasons, they would be a, an additional sort of valuable contributor. So so our goal was to amplify our voice in a lot of different areas, as well as the voice of others that we think have something particularly unique to add to the industry. And we kind of settled on a quarterly because I, I do think that there's a lot of information swirling around. And so we didn't want to be, you know, another group putting out some daily or weekly thing. We wanted to have the time to really be thoughtful and to react to things that we think are interesting in the market and relate to areas that we think people should be focused on. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate that. Um, so, I mean, along these lines, you're also a founding member of the Sustainable Cannabis uh, coalition, correct? Um, and so, so can you talk a little bit about how you came to find yourself in that founding role and, uh, and what is, uh, SCC's mission and, and what kind of upcoming initiatives does the group have for the coming year? Yeah. I, so I would say that, and if I go back to the, the comments I made earlier about our affordable housing and community development practice, We've always felt like we were kind of ESGing, I'll use the verb, um, for, we have been for a very long time. And as we saw this kind of proliferation of ESG and, and maybe previously, as folks may have referred to it as uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility, we saw such a, I guess, momentum building in all kinds of facets of our economy, particularly maybe since the pandemic, but we've been focused on it, you know, since much earlier than that. And 
at some point, as we saw this sort of proliferation of ESG discussion, and as we saw the implications it could have for the cannabis industry, which was also starting to talk a lot about ESG and, and sort of what that meant to the industry, which I happen to think is an incredibly important thing in the sense that most industries don't come to the realization that that's a critically important element until much later in the life cycle. And we were having conversations with some folks that were also focused on these issues, a lot of which was environmental in, in terms of trying to find a more uh, efficient way and, and more um, responsible way to cultivate, for instance, but also sure. to but to tie together the social issues that obviously exist in this space. And as we were talking with people, th there was just sort of this organic group that started to form and some folks in particular that said, we should kind of formalize this and begin to create some sort of like-minded folks that can help advance things in the industry. And part of the theory was that if we could, I would say create awareness, education, and influence around why it's important to do all of the aspects of ESG that this group sort of thought were relevant and nothing was sort of off the table, that we would see where it went and how it would kind of combine with other thought leaders out there and other ways that in a sense, what we could all do together is grow the market. I, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to, is if we can find ways to take a long view of this industry and the opportunity and think differently about how being more responsible would be in everybody's economic and sort of social interest, that that would be beneficial. And I really think that it was just that. It was kind of this organic formation of a bunch of different folks that included some operators and a lot of service providers saying, this is something we can all do together. And that if we can have that opportunity to create awareness, to educate and to influence, we will help expand the market. We will wind up getting ahead of any regulation that might be sort of otherwise forced upon us. And in doing so, if the market grows, we all will likely get our fair share of opportunities from that growth. So it was really sort of a, this, this feels responsible. This feels like it helps encourage a very long-term view of the industry. And this helps expand the market in a way that we can then all kind of benefit from having a bigger market. Because in, in our mind, that's really the goal here, right? It's to expand this market and to bring more stakeholders into the market, whether they be investors, obviously customers, educating regulators, thinking differently about how to engage with employees, that all those things will support a better, bigger industry. And that was really the goal. And we felt like it, again, aligned with who we were culturally. And we just felt like there was such a great opportunity to say, let's think differently about how we can affect the environment, how we can address social issues, how we can bring people closer together in making this a bigger, better, long-term play. And, um, you know, I think that in terms of what's on tap for this year, um, the, the SEC has kind of supported, I'd call it sponsored some work around um, efficiency and cultivation from an environmental standpoint, working with Dartmouth and the Rocky Mountain Institute. They've been working with some operators to do some really interesting studies around how to more efficiently cultivate cannabis with less of an impact on the environment. 
There's some work that's specifically focused on um, ASTM D37 and sort of the kind of manufacturing best practices to kind of get ahead of, of the regulators. Um, and then there's just a constant conversation around how all of that ultimately ties back to a lot of the social issues, uh, certainly the social equity issues and, and all kinds of ways to sort of think about greater collaboration and how all of the kind of governance issues that we think about and, and that we talked about earlier around um, bringing sophistication and a, a greater level of kind of process to the organizations in this space will just benefit the industry long-term. And so the, the Sustainable Cannabis Coalition is really looking at sustainability from a lot of different perspectives, but with at its core, the goal of expanding the market and thinking long-term. Excellent. Um, switching gears just a little bit here, you you also have a strong background in community development and real estate. Um, how does that expertise fit into the work you do with cannabis clients? Yeah, one big way in, in our view is that cannabis is a lot of things, but one thing that it is but doesn't maybe get a lot of recognition for or discussion about is economic development. You know, cannabis is something that uh, as an industry has created an enormous number of jobs. It has created tax revenue, and often that's the big motivator for you know advancing a state program is the tax revenue it will generate. Sure. And it is in response to all of the challenges that exist in what I think we would all agree is a failure of the war on drugs. So as a result, we view the community development practice is really being about economic development. How, how do we work together? And, and when I say we, the public and private sector, government, philanthropy, not-for-profit community, et cetera, working with the for-profit marketplace to grow the economy, to advance goals that are going to be in everyone's interest and to continue to create some forward momentum. And similarly, I think that's really what the cannabis industry is. It's kind of a microcosm of that larger kind of economic development ideal. And so for us, it's been, an, it's been a way to bring together industries that everybody may not think about as being related. You know, I said earlier that culturally, what we experienced in community development over the last 45 years has been, at least in those early years, reminiscent of what we're seeing with cannabis today. And I think that that whole notion of economic development, that whole notion of the public-private partnership, all of the things that we think cannabis really is and does are very, very similar. And so we've sort of tried to bring the things that we've experienced, the things we've learned, and the things we hope we can teach to how to make the industry more effective. And, and I think in, in the spirit of expanding that market, what you're also doing is the skeptics, the naysayers, uh, or, or people that just may have seemingly divergent positions on things. If everybody can get their arms around the notion of economic development, we think that it creates even greater opportunity. And to the extent that we don't and may not for a while have federal legislation, we think there's a unique opportunity to think about economic development at the state and local level and engage with policymakers in addition to all of those private sector participants to again, expand that market and to make it a more efficient market. And we're starting to encourage conversations in our community development areas of focus uh, 
around cannabis that didn't otherwise exist because we think that that helps create additional momentum from other places and folks that become stakeholders in the outcome of the cannabis industry. And it's an interesting and, and very positive response we get because I think when you frame it as economic development, uh, I think it changes the discussion and I think it uh, maybe convert some people who might not have been believers in what this can accomplish, but at a minimum for those that accept that there's no sort of putting the horse back in the barn, they can find ways to be more supportive of how we grow this industry. And that's what we keep coming back to is that, you know, ultimately that's what economic development is. That's what we think cannabis as an industry has become. And we think that that creates the opportunity to expand this activity in lots of places and to do really good things with the tax revenue, for instance, that's generated from those efforts that will help positively impact the economy. And then everybody wins and you know, you're sort of tying everything together. So we think it makes it more of a, a true ecosystem when you establish it in that context. Sure. Sure. Now you've, you've talked about economic development and you mentioned that, you know, part of what you guys do is, um, M and a support work, um, right. The, so the valuation and, and, and support work that goes around M and a be curious to get your thoughts on in particular, the, the M and a climate in the industry right now. I mean, we all know that safe banking did not pass in the last Congress, uh, despite high hopes that I think we all had that, um, there was a real possibility that we'd all be getting some relief there. And we've seen, you know, public company stock prices are at an all-time low. Uh, the ability of these larger companies to make deals has become more difficult because, you know, they don't want to raise money and take the dilution uh, that comes with a low stock price and they don't want to necessarily use their paper for the same reason. Um, that seems to be driving a lot of the activity downstream as well, even with the pub with the private companies. Uh so what's your what's your current take on the M&A environment in the space? What type of activity do you expect to see this year? Um, and uh, and and just in general, I mean, are you are you optimistic, pessimistic? Um, you know, how are you viewing how are you viewing M&A activity in in this space? And and what should people be looking for in 2023? Well. We certainly think that there will be a fair amount of M&A activity. I, I guess it depends on how you measure it as to how it will compare. I think there will be a lot of activity sometimes in situations where you have smaller companies that just aren't seeing the same long-term viability, given all the conditions you just mentioned, and you know maybe realizing that they're they're just not they, they have to do something in order to sort of perpetuate whatever legacy they establish they may not do it at the highest valuation but that there is a there's a different path for you know the entity they established now if those are relatively small companies and depending on where in the sort of supply chain they sit that will certainly have an effect so you know whether you'll see more or less activity or assets changing hands among cultivators versus processors versus retail, kind of hard to say, but we don't necessarily think that there's going to be a unique difference across the supply chain. I think some of those differences will be around geographic markets, obviously, because everything is is so unique to its geography. Um, I think you'll continue to see activity where folks are going to get more strategically focused. And therefore, I think one person's divestiture will inevitably be someone else's acquisition. And I think that there are 
going to be companies, including some of the larger companies that see a different strategic path forward because they need to differentiate themselves. And as a result, there will be kind of a willing buyer and seller on both sides of the trade. It's just a matter of where prices land. And I think that on the valuation side, you know, whatever technical analysis you go through, it's always been hard to establish what really is the value, right? The value is whatever a, a willing buyer and seller, you know, will, will constant where they will consummate a transaction. But a lot of that has been a function of where people think the market will go. And all of the things that affect that around cost of money and future growth of industries and likelihood of federal legalization and all of that. I think that's all very up in the air, but yet I think everybody is still bullish on the viability long-term of the industry. So I do think that folks that have um, more resources will be in a better position to make bigger bets. The big question is, will they? If you're sitting on a bunch of cash, spending it now when it's much more expensive to raise money is still very costly, right? Because once you've spent it, if you want to replenish, that's a very expensive proposition. But what we tend to hear and see is the extent to which so many folks feel like there's opportunity in this market. And I think that will lead to a fair amount of M&A because people feel they've kind of waited things out. And if we're not at the bottom, we're still at a point where there is value out there because for different reasons, there are definitely motivated sellers. And that means there will be motivated buyers. Um, I think what's going to be interesting is who those buyers may be. I mean, we've seen some some groups that were new to the industry come in and as part of some of the divestiture activity say, we're in an adjacent industry, we wanna come in and be a part of this and that's what they're doing. And I think a lot of organizations that may have sophisticated business practices but maybe haven't been as knowledgeable about the cannabis industry are still gonna see an opportunity in coming into the industry now because they feel like, you know, if we haven't been in already, we can get in at a lower price point. And then if we have a differentiator from a operational standpoint, we're going to take advantage of that. And I actually think that's good for the industry. I think obviously for those that don't do as well in, you know, executing the trade, they, you know, that's unfortunate, but I think this is natural to any industry. And since the growth in this industry is so different than anything we've really ever seen or in places where we've seen it, it's been this sort of kind of peak and valley type scenario. So I think this is part of the natural progression. And I actually think it's healthy to, it's healthy as long as there's a sort of liquid and efficient market. And I think there's some real concerns as to how liquid and efficient we may be right now as an industry. But I do believe that there's a fair amount of aggregate balance sheet that gives us enough liquidity to say, people will continue to transact because it, it allows you to maintain relevance. And for most folks, that's been the key to cannabis, staying relevant, having a brand, being able to pivot your strategy. And frankly, that's what happens in any industry. And cannabis wants to be considered like any other industry. So I think we're at that point where, um, you know, with continued growth, because, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that you got a lot of market coming on board as we speak and a lot of new market potential ahead of us. And so I think some liquidity coupled with all of that means I think we'll continue to see a fairly vibrant market, again, because this is a long play for a lot of people. 
Excellent. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Although, I mean, you, you made a comment about uh, not sure if we're at the bottom and you made it for a knot. Uh, I don't know where that bottom is, but. Well, uh, <laughs> I gave up predicting uh, uh, the highs and the lows, but I, I, I hope you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I think we're at a point where um, now is a good time and, and hopefully it's an upward trajectory. Uh, but but there are a lot of factors that, frankly, are not cannabis industry issues and, you know, a lot of macro uh, factors that are affecting the cannabis industry maybe more acutely than they are other industries for lots of different reasons. And those are things that hopefully, um, again, public policy, fiscal or monetary will start to affect those things. And that will be positive for the cannabis industry, which is not something we've said too often recently, but, but I hope that will be the case. Excellent. Um, so let's well, let's move on to some something a little little more optimistic, um, which is uh, you know you're based out of Baltimore, uh, and Maryland recently passed adult use leg- legislation. Uh, did so last November. Uh, that law is set to take effect in July, I believe, on July first of this year. So what's the atmosphere like there now in Maryland? Right? How, how is the state getting ready to open sales, and uh, what kind of opportunities and challenges do you foresee in the state? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of excitement here. I, I mean, I, I think the, the medicinal market has been a strong one, right? A pretty limited license environment. And I think that um, while the program had some challenges, literally some core challenges when it when the medicinal uh, program was rolled out, I think the market has actually done very well. And so people are optimistic that um, Maryland can learn a lot from some of the challenges that exist in some of the other states that have gone from medical to adult use in roughly the same time frame. I think um, one other thing that happened in November is that Maryland elected a new governor who's very pro-cannabis and has been very focused on the industry. So I think that while the prior administration wasn't unfriendly, I don't think they were as friendly. So I think that's going to help create momentum. The legislature was really anticipating that the uh, ballot measure would be approved. And so I think there were some things done in the legislature to hopefully expedite the process. But there's still a lot of uncertainty as to exactly what will happen or what we will be prepared to do on July 1st. So I think it's going to take a bit longer to have a functioning market. I think there's still some things to be figured out around um, how you deal with licensing and obviously how you deal with social equity, which is going to be a big component of this state like it is of any other. And as a result, momentum is going to be, I think, something we just don't know a lot about right now. I think we're going to know more in a few months and in advance of the July 1st date. But I wouldn't be surprised if it takes a good bit longer than July 1st to see something that everybody can say is a successful launch. I think there's still lots of questions about, you know, do you let the existing uh, medical licensees have sort of first shot at the adult use market, and then you sort of bring on additional licensing over time? Do you do something that is more of a true launch with with new industry participants competing with existing folks that want to? Um, So I think there's a lot of uncertainty, but I also think that the feeling is that it is a very, um, it's a big market opportunity and that uh, there's been a lot invested in really trying to study what's going on in other states and what potential exists here so that we don't create some of the supply demand challenges that have existed in other places. Some of that may be hard to avoid, 
But I think there's a ton of excitement and optimism uh, all over the state around what this can mean, uh, going back to some of the earlier comments, particularly around economic development, how to utilize the tax revenue, how to anticipate the tax revenue first, how to utilize it effectively, how to impact um, parts of the state that have suffered from the war on drugs, while at the same time being able to create economy and look at cannabis as an opportunity for workforce development, for job creation, for tie into a host of other industries along the sort of supply chain. And um, it, it's exciting. I mean, I, obviously, we've been around this in other places, but none that I lived in. So you can sort of feel it. It's kind of palpable. And um, that's a good thing. We, we need some uh, some palpable. So Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's let's look a little bit ahead to the future here. Uh, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests is what we call our, our crystal ball question. Um, you know, we're still in the early days of 2023. So as you start looking forward to the rest of the year, what types of developments do you expect to see in the industry? Uh, we talked a little bit about M&A, um, uh, but you can go into that a little bit more. Uh, you know, wholesale pricing, that's been a big issue that we've seen in uh, states around the country. Federal legislation. What are the developments that you're, you're, you're following most closely for this year? I'd say to start with the one I'm not optimistic about or, or following too closely, I, I federal legalization, I mean, I've always struggled with how quickly that could or would happen. So I'm not optimistic there. Um, obviously disappointed and wish that we could have had more momentum on banking and or you know some, some tax reform. Um, but I don't think we're going to see that. What we're looking for more is the development of efforts around certain states. It feels to me like there's just so much potential to advance new programs and some in new states. And so I, we're, we're very keen on where to help with, in any way we can, the growth of the marketplace at the state level. I, I think there's a ton of potential there, as well as to support the, um, the sort of rollout of programs in states in 2023 that really are just in their infancy, or in some cases, maybe haven't even rolled out. So you have so much to do in um, the tri-state area of Connecticut, New Jersey, New York. And um, you know we're going to be very focused there and doing what we can to be helpful to that. Um, I, I've sort of shared my thoughts on m and I, I do think there yeah. will continue to be activity. And I do think that um, what we're particularly focused on is and, and hopeful that we can support the strategic direction folks are taking to break away a little bit from just buying market share, which I think for a lot of folks to remain relevant, that was a big part of the strategy, and to get more focused on what their unique differentiators are among the operators to not necessarily develop more market share, but to be much more effective within the markets that they want to prioritize. And I think that's going to create divestiture opportunities in some cases that will be someone else's strategic advantage. And I think that's going to be an interesting opportunity as well. We also think 2023 is likely to see some interesting collaborations and development of kind of where the brands start to go. We've always been believers that this is ultimately a brand play that a lot of the sort of production, if you will, can become somewhat commoditized. And that sort of gets to this whole sort of wholesale retail pricing issue that if folks get really efficient with their operations, and we think they can, and if they can really um, 
address how to sort of leverage the brand notion most effectively that you sort of mitigate the issues associated with wholesale pricing in the market. And so we're, we're very anxious to both observe and support the development of greater operational effectiveness among the existing operators and maybe new entrants to the market where they can find a more effective way to compete in an environment where supply demand is, is pushing prices down. And, and our theory is that you should be able to find the sort of production point that allows you to compete even in an environment where prices have dropped such that, well, it, it comes down to some level of operational efficiency and effectiveness. And that, you know, that to me is the critical sort of success barometer of the industry, right? That if you can have the ability to survive in that environment and ultimately thrive, because then the brand play means that you can sort of segment products differently. And that as the market expands, even in different states, you have a chance to have a much more significant impact on the market and on your business. So I think 2023 is gonna be a time where, because the capital is more challenged, that people are gonna really focus differently on the operational side of their business. And in doing so, I think it's gonna be a little bit of a, um, I hope a tipping point where you get to the point where folks get so much more efficient and effective at what they do that it shifts the dynamics in the market in a positive way. And if simultaneously you're getting a little bit of shakeout around M&A and you've got a bunch more states and programs coming online, it's actually a lot of momentum. And then, you know, you get into 24 and beyond and all of a sudden things are really on a big up, upswing. So that's our view of sort of where things can go and, and, and where we hope to have uh, a hand in supporting that, uh, that trajectory. Fantastic. Um, all right. Well, last question for you then, uh, as we wrap up here, what is the, what is the one story that you think is being missed or under discussed about the cannabis industry today, right? If, if tomorrow you were to open up the, the Baltimore sun, for example, what story about cannabis would you most want to see on the front page that isn't currently being told? Well, I think it's the story that I mentioned earlier around economic development, because I think that, um, Economic development at its core can have so much, if viewed through that lens, there's such a positive impact when, when people start to think about that from both the public and the private sectors and uh, from other industries as they think about ways to collaborate with folks that are operating in the cannabis space. I think it addresses a lot of the um, concerns around social equity, legitimate concerns that frankly, when you think differently about how to um, leverage tax revenue and other things, how to um, positively impact neighborhoods and, and communities that were negatively impacted by the war on drugs. I think all of those things start to really change the tide, not just of cannabis, but of so many other issues that everybody is dealing with all over the country. And, and I think that cannabis to me plays a much bigger role in that whole economic development story and the way in which that can have such a positive impact on so many other economic factors and uh, creating opportunity for lots of different people. Uh, I, I think that's an underreported story. I think it's one that has um, left us with less momentum and, and collaboration and 
if you think about it the way we do, that that this is about a long play and expanding the market and increasing opportunity for everybody, I think looking through that economic development lens is really what does that. So I, I think that th that is a, an important story. And um, if folks would start writing about it, I think that um, it helps change the trajectory a little bit. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, well, terrific. Uh, Ira, I really appreciate your time here. I'm sure our listeners do as well. Um, and we wish you the best of luck in the, uh, in the coming years and beyond here in the cannabis industry. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate you including me and um, best of luck to you as well. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks again to our guest this week, Ira Weinstein, Managing Principal of Cannabis Industries at Cone Resnick. You can learn more about his company by visiting their website, www.coneresnick.com. As always, thanks again for listening to The Green Rush. To learn more about KCSA and how we can help you with your cannabis, you can visit www.kcsa.com or email Ann, Lewis, Chris, and I at greenrush at kcsa.com. You can also connect with us via our social channels on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush, Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. And as always, we love hearing from you guys, um, guest ideas, topics you want, um, questions you'd love us to ask. We love hearing from you all. So um, until next time. That's one take, Shay. One take. Cannabis! Cannabis!